Today, we are continuing our journey in the book of Genesis. Remember, this afternoon, we'll have our Torah study on this week's Torah portion, but we're working our way through Genesis, and we are, uh, I guess I could say it another way, on our quest to complete the book of Genesis. (laughs) You know, it's kind of a different little perspective there. Anyway, so we are in the 29th, I'm going to say the 29th and 30th chapter. Because we're going to look at a big piece of the puzzle here today, a big piece of the story. We're up to, remember last time we talked about Jacob and the dream that he had as he was preparing to go to Padan Aram. He's preparing to go to Haran to find a wife for himself. So today we come to the passage where it's really two parts. There's two parts to it. One part is is where he finds his wife. And then the other part is, is all the children that come from all of the uh, wives. And it's a very interesting story. You know, do you ever do this? Do you ever, uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know if I should say this. You ever like you watch TV and you're like killing time and you see like an old television program and you take out your phone and you say, I wonder what that actor is doing now if they're still alive. Right? Do you ever do that or, or find out something about this uh, television program? So uh, the other day, I was home, and uh, Bonanza was on television, okay? And so there's a little scene there where uh, Haas is talking to a boy, a little boy. And the little boy is feeling bad. I, I only saw this little piece of it. He's feeling bad about something. And, uh, and then he, he says something to Haas, and Haas says to him, you know, look at you just called me Haas. That's not my real name. That's, that's a, a nickname. And it's uh, something I had to get used to. And, you know, if you can't uh, sort of laugh at yourself, you're not going to get through life very well. That, that kind of lesson, right? So, uh, of course, what did I do? I took out my phone. First, I want to know what's his real name, okay? That was the first thing. Does anybody know what it is? Eric. No, not his real name in the program. Everybody knows his real name. No, his name's Eric, okay? Just so you know. Then I learned something that applies to this passage. (laughs) How does that happen, right? What did I learn? I learned that Adam, Haas, and little Joe come from three different mothers. Isn't that interesting? Just so you know, all right? Much like the children of Israel, okay? And, uh, and so it's very interesting. It's a quite an interesting family uh, dynamic that you have here in, uh, in Genesis. One would think that if this is like the first family, the cornerstone family, this is, you know, uh, the, the children of Israel, the, the, that uh, you would have, uh, you know, a, a very nice mother and a father and, and the children, and it would just be like this ide- the ideal right? But what we learn from our portion today, and you you've kind of get it from Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah, along there with Jacob and Esau, that far, far from it, right? And so the first thing that we see here today is the very beginning is how Jacob goes and finds on, on the quest to find a wife. Now, throughout the next five chapters, or so, not everything we're going to do today, but over the next couple of weeks, we always want to remember what God told Jacob in the dream. 
that he would be with him always, that he would direct his paths, right? So, and, and Jacob remembers this, and it's important in our reading it and understanding it to recognize and remember that Jacob remembers that. And the reason that we know that Jacob is aware that God is with him, even through all the machinations that he has to go through, uh, because later on in his life, toward the end of his life, he talks about how God has been with him all the way through. And you know, we'll talk more about that later, later on. But the first thing we, uh, we see is that um, uh, evidently, and it kind of makes sense in the wilderness, in, in a, in a, or not wilderness, but in a desert uh, area, in a dry place, that uh, where the wells were, that's the place to be. That's where you want, if you want to go, and you, if you were living 5,000 years ago and you wanted to find a wife, you go to where the water is, right? That's, uh, we see that in a number, several different times where wives have been found, the wife for Isaac, the wife now for Jacob, right? And so uh, we see here that um, Jacob uh, goes uh, here to Padan Aram. He goes, he sees a well, right? And, uh, and, and he asks the obvious question. He knows where he has to go. So he's looking, he's looking for uh, his mother's family, right? And he's never been there. He doesn't know them. So he says in verse 4, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Bingo. Right? From Haran. Ah, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. Okay, so he knows he's in the right place. And he asks, and in verse 6, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So, in the providence of God, which this is all about, God working out the circumstances, Rachel shows up right at the right moment with the sheep, okay? And much like uh, Rebecca, she seems she's a hard worker. Uh, she's coming with the sheep, she's coming to get water, and, and, and very resourceful. The matriarchs of Israel, very resourceful women, okay? So, uh, Jacob says... It is still high day, it is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. So it's interesting, they, the, the men around there, the people around, say, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered, and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well and the water and water the sheep. So Rachel comes while they're having this conversation, and what, is, what does Jacob do? He rolls the stone from the mouth of the well, waters the and, and waters the flock. You know, it's very interesting when you read commentaries on this. Oh, that Jacob, presumptuous that he is, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, but he rolls away the stone. So, you know, uh, but, but what's interesting is that the flocks get watered uh, when he rolls away the stone. And he kisses Rachel. Now, this is not like the kiss of, uh, you're my wife. This is the kiss of, we're related. To each other, right? And uh, and I'm your cousin, uh, Jacob. Okay, okay. Although he lifted his voice and wept, meaning, oh, this is fantastic. You know, things are really working out for me here. All right. 
Then Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So it came about when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into the house. Then, he re- then Jacob, of course, related to Laban all these things. So this is a great moment. Uh, Jacob has come to the right place. Let us not read into the passage. There's nothing negative about Laban, Lavan here, or Jacob, that Jacob has come from a faraway place, uh, and now he meets his family. He's never met his extended family, and he meets them, and of course he has seen Rachel, and it's quite clear when he lifted up his voice and he wept that it could go of one. You know, you see how you can interpret that two ways. You can interpret that as, this is going to be my wife? So he lifted up his voice and wept. Or, this is going to be my wife. And he lifted up his voice and wept. See what you can do? How you can uh, read things into the passage? It's unbelievable, right? All it says is, he lifted up his voice and wept. And then uh, she runs and tells her, her, uh, her brother Laban. And he comes and, and there's like this great reunion. And, uh, and, and that's what the text says. Okay? Without reading anything into it. Okay. Uh, so it's this uh, wonderful uh, moment. We see the hand of God in the whole thing. And then, very important, Jacob relates to Laban all these things. So where I've been, God sent me here uh, looking for a wife uh, from my family and so on. Laban said to him, surely you are bone, you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Okay. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And so Laban is, says, you're here with me for a month and you're, you're working here. Let me pay you. Let me pay you. Okay. You know, my personal, this is just my own uh, opinion about how this is laid out, that just like we uh, come to the text about Jacob with, uh, with a chip on our shoulder, so we also come to the texts about Laban in the same way. Okay? So it's just kind of interesting. All right. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel, or Rachel. Now, it says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. So when it says Leah's eyes were weak, it doesn't mean like she needed to go to an optometrist, okay? It doesn't mean that, you know, she needed stronger lenses or, or something. It meant basically that she was not attractive, but Rachel was beautiful, okay? All right. At least in the eyes of Jacob. So now Jacob, it says Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. You know, a question that there's no answer to here is, why didn't he just say, can I marry Rachel? You know, it's it's Jacob's idea to stay seven years. Isn't that kind of interesting? So we don't know exactly what that's that's exactly about. Uh, When Rebecca, when the servant came for Rebecca, there was no serving for seven years. She just uh, was basically, she had to decide if she wanted to go, and off they went, right? So that's kind of interesting. All right. And then uh, Laban says, yes, uh, better you than anybody else around here, right? Okay. 
So immediately in one verse, seven years go by. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed that I might go into her. And Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came about in the evening that he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he says to Laban, now what did he say to Leah? That would be an interesting uh, thing too. There's a lot that is not in this uh, story. Okay. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Leah, or to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for uh, Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, It is not the practice of our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. So it's kind of interesting. Laban's answer is, is interesting. He's not like um, making something up or, Oh, I made a mistake. Uh, or he seems to give, like, uh, from, at least from his point of view, some, a reasonable answer. It's not our custom. So we know what we don't know. See, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know if Laban was truly deceiving Jacob or if in Laban's mind, well, before I give you Rachel, I have, uh, you know, I, I have to give you or I have to marry off uh, my, uh, my other daughter. And that seem, seems to be what he's saying, like a very matter of fact, that, that I can't do that. I have to. Why didn't he tell him that in the first place? We don't know. Maybe he deceived him. Maybe he didn't. The fact is of this of the story is though is that Jacob is now married to Leah. Okay, all right. Now to Jacob's credit, uh, he doesn't uh, say no. I you know uh, this happened and I wasn't aware of it, uh, and so uh, I'm you know forget it, uh, Laban. No, he doesn't do that. Uh, Laban says, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also. For the service you shall serve with me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel uh, as her maid. Okay, so we see here that uh, Laban is not keeping Rachel from uh, Jacob, but he does have to serve another seven years. Now, I wanted to say something about the word, uh, the word weak. It's kind of an interesting word here. So this is very helpful in another passage of Scripture. You know, many of you are familiar with a passage in the book of Daniel, right? The 70 weeks of Daniel, right? So, of course, what you know from that passage, it's actually years, right? 490 years in the, in the book of Daniel. It's a 70 weeks, not actually like a little more than a year, right? But actually uh, 77s. Same thing here. The Hebrew word for week is Shavua, right? All right, which means, like, we, what do we say at the end of Shabbat? Shavua Tov, right? To, to a good week, a good week, right? But it means seven. It's seven. The word means seven, right? So just as uh, if you go to the uh, supermarket and you buy a dozen eggs or you ask the uh, grocer for a dozen eggs, you don't have to say, that's 12, by the way. 
right? Uh, it's 12. Dozen is 12. And so in Hebrew, week is seven. So that's important to know, all right? And it's uh, usually years, unless uh, it, it has a qualifier. Like even in Daniel, very good, in the 10th chapter of Daniel, it talks about three weeks, and it says weeks of days, weeks of days uh, in that passage. So here, uh, make no mistake, it's not a week, it's seven years, okay? All right. So there, uh, there we go. Now, so now Jacob has two wives and two uh, maids, we'll say. Slave girls. I don't know what whatever term you, you know, whatever we want to uh, use here. Okay? All right. Now, one would think, now if we stop there and we think now they're going to have children, we would think that, well, probably what's, if, you know, if someone said, well, don't read any more of this, and you see that he has the wife that he loves and her maid, and the wife that he really doesn't love uh, and, uh, and her maid, and he's, and he's going to have 12 sons, who's going to have the majority of these children? You're going to think Rachel is going to have the majority of these children. That makes sense, okay? The wife that he loves, the wife that he doesn't love, uh, two maids, okay. But then what do we read? In verse uh, 31, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, Reuven. For she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son, saying she named him Simeon or Shimon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore she named him Levi or Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing for now. Okay? So, you know, there's something interesting about the, uh, regardless of the etymology of the names, she names them these names in general to remember or, uh, well, to yeah, remember the fact that she is really the unloved one. So it's interesting. The first three have names. She names them particular names because of the struggle that she is having being married to Jacob. And just an interesting point of observation, the fourth son is a praise to the Lord, a little different from the others. And that's Judah, right? It's like, wow, four beyond my wildest dreams, right? Okay. So something you want to just take a mental note of, that Levi and Judah are born from the unloved wife. Why do I make a point of those two? Of course, because Moses comes from one, right? And the Messiah comes from the other, and that is very interesting. It's a very interesting uh, point to remember. Okay? So now we come to chapter 30, and we see, Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. <laughs> okay, so what do we see? We see that there's trouble in the family here. Right? Constantly trouble in the Israelite family. 
right? She's jealous of her sister. Uh, not exactly uh, the same as uh, Jacob and Esau, but nevertheless, she's jealous of her sister. She's barren. She sees that her sister uh, has four children. She has none. And certainly in that culture, uh, as it was in that time, worth had a lot to do with childbearing. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, give me children or else I die. Now, Jacob is angry now. Jacob is angry at Rachel. You know, this is so... Can't you just picture this conversation today? Who am I, God? What, 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 you know, I, what is it? Like, I'm keeping you from having children, right? So Jacob uh, says, am I in the place of God who has withheld them from you, the fruit of the womb? So Jacob, isn't it interesting? She, Rachel is angry at Jacob. You are keeping me from having children. Jacob's response is, God is in control, Right? Am I in the place of God who has withheld the fruit of the womb from you? So it tells us something about Jacob. It tells us something here that Jacob understands that God is overseeing all of this. So in accordance with the culture, again, she said, here is my maid Bilhah, like a surrogate uh, to have children, right? Here is my maid Bilhah, go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So even if the children, much like Sarah, right, and Hagar, that uh, if she can't have the children, then her maid will have the children, but they'll be her children. Okay. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife. And Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me, and has indeed heard my voice, and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. And we can, we can stop there for now. So we, uh, oh no, no, I need to read a little further. Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Ruvain went and found mandrakes in the field. And he brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is a small matter for you to take my husband and you would also take my son's mandrakes. So Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for the mandrakes. Okay. So when, when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God gave heed to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dina. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened up her womb. So she conceived and bore a son 
God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. Then later on, we'll see that she's going to have, indeed, uh, another son. So what do we learn? There's a lot of things to observe here and to take away uh, from, from this. First, what we see is with Leah and Rachel. God chooses the unlikely one. God chooses the unlikely one to have all of these children. That is indeed a, a great lesson. That it's uh, clear that uh, Jacob loved Rachel. She was favored. Leah was not. The text kind of gives us the feeling that, you know, she was never going to, she was really never going to have a husband unless her unless it was uh, in some uh, fashion that, uh, some sneaky fashion. And so, uh, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I kind of feel bad for Leah. You, you know, that here she was the unloved wife and, and God opens up her womb. Now, sadly for Leah, it seems that with every child, she's now hoping that Jacob will now love her. So it's kind of sad. You, you know, but unbeknownst to Leah, she plays a hugely important role in the history of the world because she gives birth to the great teacher of Israel, you know, uh, through uh, ancestors, you know, through uh, descendants, I mean, uh, Moses and, you know, and Aaron and the entire priesthood of Israel and the kings of Israel. Uh, come from Leah. And so what a great lesson there is there that uh, God chooses the unlikely one. That has a lot to do with the fact that the, you know, the older shall serve the younger. You see it here. Even amongst the, the, uh, these wives, the older, in a sense, uh, serves the younger in, in that Rachel is the loved one, but God blesses uh, Leah tremendously. And so what a great lesson that is for us. Uh, you know, we may uh, be in a place where we may uh, feel unloved. We may feel like we have missed the boat, that uh, not just in terms of, uh, you know, marriage or anything like that, but just in life, you, you know, uh, that recognize that God does not show favor based on uh, how we look, God doesn't show favor based on what we have. God shows favor based on who he is and his faithfulness. And so I think that's a great, uh, a great lesson uh, for us, that um, uh, how God, he opens up her womb. God shows great compassion on Leah and loves her dearly. And so we have that lesson. Another lesson is, uh, is about Jacob. Uh, with Jacob... You know, he's a little different from Abraham and Isaac. Of course, usually he is the one who's put down. He is the one who is uh, the, the treacherous one, right? Well, when I read about uh, Abraham's sons, he had one son who was chosen, right? Who was that? Isaac, right? Isaac has two sons. He has one son, still one, one son who is chosen, right? That's Jacob. Jacob, that treacherous deceiver, has 12 chosen sons. 
Every one of his sons is chosen. It's not one. He gets 12. And so that also is an interesting uh, observation, uh, again, about uh, Jacob. Jacob, that's why, the, what, it, what are the, uh, in the Bible, the Israelites are called the sons of Israel. Literally, the sons of Israel. When Jacob's name is changed to Israel, the Jewish people are the sons of Israel. Uh, and so you have 12 uh, uh, chosen sons. And uh, as we read through the scriptures, we will read about uh, the destiny of them uh, individually and as tribes, and then we read about them as a, as a community. So there's another great lesson uh, to learn about how God works here, is uh, that they are uh, a, there's an individuality, an, an individual aspect to their existence as, uh, as a people and a communal uh, understanding of, the, of, of how God uh, understands uh, the, the people, right? Uh, at the end of uh, Genesis, in chapter 49, there uh, uh, we read that Jacob blesses his sons uh, individually and sort of gives them a destiny, right? We read in a way about their destiny, not just uh, what God is going to do for them, but talks about their destiny. That's where you have the famous messianic prophecy uh, about Judah, you know, and uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, but there's something about all of the, all of the tribes, about their, their destinies. So they have individual destinies, but they all comprise uh, the children of Israel. But one of the things that we, we see all the way through, is that they, they really have a difficult time getting along. They have a difficult time getting along their entire existence. And you could almost say to this very day, <laughs> right? Now, the, uh, the individuality of the tribes is very interesting in that to a small little degree, we see that in, uh, in Judaism today. Most people uh, have no idea. Well, it's all tradition. It's a tradition, the you know, tribal designations of, of people uh, today. It's a tradition. Uh, and uh, in the Jewish world, there's, uh, the, only, uh, the only tribe that really matters is, is one. Does anybody know what that is? It's the, tri it's the tribe of Levi or Levi. Because if you have ever been a member of a synagogue or you know, you've been in the Jewish world living and breathing and existing and participating in the Jewish world, you know that in a synagogue service, uh, there is a at a particular place in the service, the uh, people who are called Kohanes, right? You've heard of that? Often people with the last name Cohen, but not always. Not, not always. It doesn't always work that way. But they're called Kohanes. That means they are traditionally descended from the high priest. It's from the tribe of uh, Levi. Right? And what they do in a service, anybody ever see this? You know what I'm going to say? Anybody know what I'm going to say? That uh, they come up to the front, okay? And uh, they, uh, they take their uh, talid and put it over their head, and they pray the ironic benediction over the, in a, in a very uh, liturgical way, in a little different kind of way than we, we do it here. But they pray over the congregation, okay? Those who are... Uh, Levies or just plain old Levites, 
They also have a role to play, especially in an Orthodox uh, synagogue, where they actually, uh, there's a little water faucet nearby, and they uh, take a little uh, pitcher of water and, and bring it over to the people who are the Kohanes, and they like wash their hands before like serving the, uh, the high priest, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and so, uh, and everybody else is called simply an Israelite, okay? Now, so you have that. Then also, in the uh, Torah service, when the Torah comes out, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we do, in our a normal service, we do one, we call it aliyah. Aliyah is, means to go up, right? Aliyah, just like going to Israel, you know, aliyah, making aliyah, moving to Israel, going to Israel. So we call them aliyahs. Uh, and uh, seven, we do it seven different times in one service. That a person comes up and says, you know, Baruch Hu Adonai Hamvorach. And then a person reads a portion of the Torah portion. And then they say the prayer after, like, like, like we do. We do it once. There's seven, it, it, every week, it's, there's seven of them. All right? And the first one always goes to a Kohen. The second one always goes to a Levi or plain old Levite. And then anybody can do the other five. And, uh, and I would say that most people, I've rarely met a Jewish person in my life that, who is not a Kohen or Levi that actually would say, oh, I'm from Issachar or I'm from Zebulon. Uh, that is a rarity. Uh, let's see, I'll ask... Uh, Sadell, did you ever hear of anybody ever say, oh, I'm from Issachar or Naphtali? No. Oh, there's always a but. But what? Okay. We'll talk about it later. Okay. So, uh, basically, that's how it works. Uh, and so the tribal understandings are, don't really translate into today, except in a worship service, really. Except in a service, maybe a, maybe a few other things. But... But that's the only uh, uh, only sense of the of the tribes the, today, other than the understanding that uh, the Jewish people are the twelve tribes of Is- of Israel. All right. Now uh, the individuality of the tribes do does come up in a few places. For example, the breastplate of the uh, high priest. Right. There's a stone for each tribe. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, speaking of stones, when the uh, Israelites across the Jordan River uh, from the wilderness into the uh, land of Canaan, right? Twelve stones are set up, remembering the twelve. It's like a memorial to God's faithfulness. And so you have the, uh, the twelve uh, tribes. Then uh, also in the uh, New Covenant, there's a couple of places uh, for example, uh, a very significant person, uh, when Yeshua is a baby, a very significant person that we read about uh, is from the tribe of Asher, right? Anna in the temple. She's from the tribe of Asher. And by the way, that just goes to show you that the concept of the lost tribes of Israel is a fallacy, okay? Is not true. She's 400 plus years after the captivity. It says in the text 
she knows what tribe she's from, from the tribe of Asher. And I think that's, that is very significant because this takes place in Judea, right? There's no longer a northern kingdom of, of Israel, but you have uh, Judea, uh, what it's called. But it also includes, uh, you know, Samaria and so on. Um, uh, so that's interesting. And then uh, also Paul, right? What does he say uh, in the book of Romans? He is from the tribe of Benjamin, right? So in other words, people seem to have known uh, where they were from. Of, of course, uh, once the second temple was destroyed, there, was, there could be no longer any verification because what's believed is that the, uh, any uh, records of such would have been um, burned up and destroyed. But anyway, then uh, you read in the book of Revelation, right, uh, in the seventh chapter, uh, about uh, the 144,000, and it mentions 12 tribes. There's some idiosyncrasies in there. Dan is not mentioned. Um, Menasha is mentioned. Ephraim isn't, but Joseph is. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. But, but the, the point of it is, is uh, that uh, you do have these uh, uh, tribal uh, designations. So what I find uh, fascinating here is that in the midst of all of these uh, issues, that these are the people from whom the kings come from. These are the people whom the Messiah comes from. The, the, uh, you know, the, the chosen people come from. Uh, these 12 sons. And it's interesting, as the chapters continue, we see that uh, some bad things happen with these sons, with some of them anyway, right? That uh, the story of their life is not, uh, is not so simple and not so good. And uh, there is uh, some immorality and things that uh, probably, if they were living today, would say, oh, I wish that wasn't in here about me. You know, uh, when you think about Judah and Tamar, right? That situation. Even Reuben and the mandrakes is kind of interesting. The mandrakes that Reuben brings to his mother and that uh, Rachel wants so badly is because the, the theory behind them is, is that it's either a narcotic or an aphrodisiac. And that, and that Rachel is thinking... I want, you can have them for tonight because I want the mandrake so I will have more children. I'll have children. And, uh, and so just the whole way it's laid out is, is such that there's a, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here. And I think that it helps us to appreciate that God takes this family. And you have to ask yourself, why did God allow it to be this way? Why, did, why not just Rachel? Why not just seven years, Rachel, 12 sons? It's beautiful, right? Because life doesn't work that way, right? It just doesn't work that way most of the time, right? And here you end up with the children of Israel, the people of the promise, the chosen people coming from the unloved wife, the maids, and then two of the sons from, uh, from Rachel. 
Uh, and I think it epitomizes, again, the struggle, you know? It epitomizes the struggle to become uh, the chosen people. The struggle to be, you know, in, in a way, Jacob epitomizes the entire history of the Jewish people with uh, his struggles uh, that, that he endures uh, here with Laban and all of that, but then also the struggle of the wives and then the struggle of the sons. It's no small thing that the 12 sons come from four different mothers. And I think that in the story of Joseph, that plays a significant role, that there's sort of um, alliances, you might say, of the sons, of who comes from what mother and how they relate to each other. So it is no small thing. When you come to the book of Judges, you see this also in the book of Judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king. What you see is that the 12 tribes were functioning really more like, like individual city-states, right? Uh, and they were not, uh, they were not a, uh, a, united, uh, a united kingdom. Uh, and that doesn't come really until David, uh, frankly, okay? Uh, and, and so, uh, again, we see, I think, the, the, uh, the struggle. And every time, in every portion here, we read about the struggle, and we have talked about the struggle. And uh, so I wanted to share a little something about the struggle today and how it relates to us. And this is a story that m many of you know. I never heard of it until about a month ago, and I was standing in the vestibule here, and someone shared it, and I never heard of it. But as is often the case, uh, I don't know what's going on, okay? So, the, uh, you know the story of how the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, right? So I'm going to read this little tiny little piece here because it relates to the children of Israel, to the Jewish people, and it relates to our own lives, okay? All right, so here you go. A man spent hours watching a butterfly struggling to emerge from a cocoon. It managed to make a small hole but its body was too large to get through it. After a long struggle, it appeared to be exhausted and remained absolutely still. The man decided to help the butterfly, and with a pair of scissors, he cut open the cocoon, thus releasing the butterfly. However, the butterfly's body was very small and wrinkled, and its wings were all crumpled. The man continued to watch, hoping that at any moment, the butterfly would open its wings and fly away. Nothing happened. In fact, the butterfly spent the rest of its brief life dragging around its shrunken body and shriveled wings incapable of flight. What the man, what the man, out of kindness and his eagerness to help, had failed to understand was that the tight cocoon and the efforts of, that, of the butterfly had to make in order to squeeze out of that tiny hole were nature's way of training the butterfly and of strengthening its wings. So this particular writer uh, says it like this. Sometimes a little extra effort is precisely what prepares us for the next obstacle to be faced. Anyone who refuses to make that effort or gets the wrong sort of help is left unprepared to fight the next battle and never manages to fly off to their destiny. And so... Uh, this, uh, how does this relate to our, our text, is that the struggle was necessary. 
in order to be the chosen people. The struggle was necessary. The struggle within, see, the, the way that God allowed in his providence for the Jewish people to be formed, for the chosen people to be formed, was that there was a struggle from within and a struggle without. There were enemies within, and that was their personalities, uh, their jealousies, uh, land issues, uh, and things of that nature. You, you know that there was a civ- basically a civil war of sorts, and you had ended up with two nations. It got so bad, right? And then you have all the enemies from without, the Assyrians and the, the Syrians and the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians. So enemies within and enemies without. Uh, and it is amazing uh, that God in his providence and loving kindness sustained uh, this people uh, who were birthed out of a struggle and maintained in a struggle all to demonstrate ultimately the faithfulness of God. And, uh, and so that certainly relates to us uh, as well, doesn't it? That uh, the struggles that we uh, endure make us strong in the Lord as we continue to place our faith and trust in him. And just as Israel's formation and life journey came with all kinds of, uh, uh, of struggles, isn't it amazing that when you read in the prophets, you read, like, for example, in the 11th chapter of Hosea, how can I give you up, Ephraim? You know, how can I give you up? I love you. You're going after uh, false gods. You're living in a, a way of life that is the antithesis of what I've promised you and, and want you to live, but I cannot give you up. See? And isn't this exactly what, what you read about? Uh, for example, in the, the New Covenant, when you read about like the prodigal son, how can I give you up? The, the, the son is wallowing in the, you know, the pig slop, right? Uh, and then comes home, uh, and the father is excited that the son has come home. How can I give you up? And so it's, uh, it is uh, quite interesting how struggle seems to be uh, what uh, is necessary in order to be refined as the people of God, whether we're talking about the, you know, Israel uh, or the, uh, the remnant of Israel and the nations um, that make up the community of uh, Messiah followers. It's all born out of, out of struggle. Very interestingly, and, and so that illustration really is very helpful, that uh, perhaps we are struggling The struggle is part of the healing process. The struggle is part of what it means to be whole and and healed and to uh, obey God. And so let it never be said that the struggle that you are enduring is, you know, the whole thing is from Satan. And if you're struggling, you're, you know, that's a horrible thing. That, well, you know, it, it, it isn't fun to struggle, certainly, but... If you're coming out of, you know, whatever kind of situation it may be, recognize that the struggle is part of the healing process in order to be whole. And, you know, it's interesting that um, Paul, in the New Covenant, talks about himself this way. He says this in the fourth chapter of uh, Philippians. This is, as many like to call them, the most, mis- the most uh, misapplied uh, passage of the entire Bible. All right. Where he says this. 
He's thanking the uh, Philippians for their concern for him and that they did, not, they, they were, they did not have the means to support him, but now they do. And so this is what he's saying. He says um, in verse 10 of chapter 4, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, of having abundance and of suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, that verse. That doesn't mean you can do anything, okay? It means that you can be content in any circumstance that you find yourself. Because, you see, he learned the secret. He learned the secret. But you know what? I don't think he actually says the secret here. I think the actual, the secret is in another place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about uh, praying three times, this thorn in the flesh, right? To keep this messenger of Satan, uh, keep him from exalting himself. He prayed three times that it would go away, whatever it was. And, uh, and so we read, uh, God says to him this. And so this is, this is, I would call this the secret. Next couple verses. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Messiah may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults and distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Messiah's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He learned, may I suggest, that when he is seemingly deficient, that is when the power of God kicks in. And that by placing his life under the authority of God, that when he is weak, he can endure. He can endure all things because of the surpassing value of the grace of God, the favor of God. And so uh, it is not about... Uh, being as strong as we can, it is about placing our faith and our trust in God completely. And so when Paul says that, that I, you know, I can, uh, I can endure, I can endure. And so what do we read in a couple of other uh, places real quickly? In the fifth chapter of Romans, in this third verse, first of all, in the second verse, as we stand in his grace, we stand in his grace, and then we read, and not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Ruach, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Messiah died for the ungodly. While, if you read the through more here, while we were helpless, while we were enemies, it says. In other words, Messiah comes when we're not in the right place, and he brings us to the right place. When the children of Israel are called and chosen, they're not in the right place. What a mess. But God brings them to the right place. And ultimately, that is the story of the children of Israel. It's about discipleship. It's about God 
uh, reining them in. It's about God teaching them and educating them and, and giving them the tools, the, the Torah, and then, of course, the, the prophets and teachers to be, able to, uh, to be able to be the chosen people and the coming, therefore, of the Messiah in order to empower them to testify of the reality of God. And so that's what God does in our lives as well. So we may not be all the way, you know, on the uh, continuum. We may not be all the way at the, uh, the perfect place. God catches us, so to speak, at different places on the continuum. See? And wherever that is, as we give our lives to him, we can rest assured that there is a hope and a future for us. And we do not have to be stuck where we are. And we see it in the life of Israel, the life of the Jewish people, and in the lives of godly Messiah followers as we walk with God. And so let us be encouraged uh, today as we see about the, 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 the formation of this family and God taking them where they are, just the way they are, and then knowing what we know uh, as the unfolding story of God forming this people to be his people, to change the world. Out of this motley crew here comes the Messiah, comes Moses, comes the prophets, comes the kings. And so who knows, wherever you're at in life, what that long-term legacy will indeed be. But as long as you stay on the path, you stay on the path, the... uh, the path of, of, the, of, uh, of the Lord, right? Uh, walking in his ways. Uh, God promises that there is indeed a hope and a future and a legacy. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you. That, that's what we know about Israel. Lord, thank you, God. Even today when we look at Israel, just horizontally look at Israel, we, we say how could, it's amazing that there is this little nation in the Middle East. Not only that, but then you have people all around the world that have this, know who they are. That can only come from you. But Lord, as we look around, we, we see that, that uh, our people are still not ready uh, uh, to be uh, those witnesses. Lord, and that today you've called that a remnant of Israel and, and, you know, and multitudes from the nations, uh, Lord. Uh, but as we look at this world, we see that this world is not ready. Uh, we see, uh, Lord, that our people are not ready. But thank you, God, that you take us where we are and you continue to move history forward in ways that we cannot understand. And so, Lord, when we personalize that uh, in our own lives, we may say, how did I get to where I am? Uh, and how do I, you know, and how do I move forward? Lord, I pray for all of us here today that we would never feel hopeless, that we would never feel like we are in a place where we're never going to get out of. Lord, I pray that we might really be able to place our trust in you and know that while our, uh, uh, the desires that we come up with, having to do whether it be our jobs or finances or things of that nature, that, that we may have certain expectations that don't get met. But Lord, in you, uh, there is a hope and a future for us and, and, a, and a life of satisfaction and of peace and of joy uh, and of deep and long relationships with people. 
uh, you know, and uh, of the sense of, of satisfaction and making a difference in people's lives. Lord, you do promise that for us. So, Lord, may we hang on to that, God, and may uh, you enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we may know the hope of your calling. And we pray that in Messiah's name, amen.